Well, we continue this morning in our series through the Gospel of Luke. We will be in chapter 11. <clears throat> and this is part two of last week's sermon, Woe to You. Our key words are woe, heart, and religion. Now, if you recall, last week we began to look at what we identified as one of the most direct attacks of Jesus on the Pharisees. The religious men of the day who were far more concerned with external religious formalism and the keeping of their self-made laws than they were with truly understanding, loving, and obeying God. If you recall, we said that Jesus is truly far different than the feminized version of him that many of us have grown accustomed to in our culture, particularly since the 19th century. Jesus was and is in no way soft or weak or unclear in his way of addressing error and abuse, but rather he's very bold and courageous and direct and clear. He didn't adopt a delicate tone. He didn't handle his spiritual adversaries with as fragile souls. He instead took direct aim at their error, and he squeezed the trigger at many different areas of false teaching and abuse and filthy, self-righteous religiosity. There was too much at stake for Jesus to simply tiptoe around the issues and around the feelings of those he was confronting. But notice also, Jesus wasn't mean, he wasn't, he wasn't hateful, he wasn't doing what we so often do when we argue against false assumptions of a person's ideas or practices. He was simply dealing with reality. He was fully in the realm of truth, and he was doing it as honestly and as clearly as could possibly be done. After all, Jesus is the embodiment of true wisdom. He handled his adversaries in the wisest manner possible, and he responded to fools in their folly. He did it in the way that he did because they were enemies of God. And they were placing extreme legal burdens on the people of God that were contrary to that which God has spoken in his word. Now, let's read the section we dealt with last week to bring us up into the context of Jesus' words that we will look at today. So let's begin in Luke 11, verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people who walk over them without knowing it. 
So if you recall, as quick review, four areas here that Jesus addresses with the Pharisees. The first was in verses 39 through 41. The Pharisees are full of greed and wickedness. They were men who were consumed by the love of money and were always in their greed seeking selfish gain. Now, remember, the Pharisee that invited Jesus into his home, was livid for Jesus' lack of regard for their man-made ritual of hand-washing prior to going and reclining at the table for a meal. So Jesus used the opportunity to point out the religious hypocrisy of all the Pharisees who spent a great deal of time washing their hands when their hearts were vile and unclean. They're a foolish group of men and their religious, high-browed externalism and it lacked every true mark of godliness and holiness. We talk that God wants a people who are inwardly transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. A people whose obedience is the overflow of thankful hearts desiring to make much of Christ for His glory. He wants a people of true spirituality who've been cleaned from the inside out. Not a people who engage in a litany of rituals and religious practices that they might be seen and applauded by men. Secondly, we saw in verse 42 that the Pharisees were going well beyond what their own law required of them in their tithing. So Jesus rebukes them in this and says, woe to you. Look at yourselves. You're, you're so concerned about every last grain of salt and every last bit of oregano, but you neglect justice and the love of God. The Pharisees were legendary in their tithing, but they were also inwardly defiled in every way. They had a disdain for the needy, for the stranger, for the orphan, and for the widow. There was no justice. There was no righteousness. Thirdly, we saw in verse 43 that Jesus dealt with the fact that the Pharisees loved the praise of men. They took the seats in the synagogue that faced everyone so they could be seen and admired. And when they went into the marketplace, they paraded around in their fancy clothes and they they sought to be recognized with lengthy, elaborate, flattering greetings. They were filled with pride. They were overflowing with a constant desire to be known and to be applauded and recognized. But Jesus' point is very clear. You can either have the praise of man or you can have the praise of God, but you cannot have both. The Pharisees sought and loved the praise of man. And lastly, we saw last week in verse 44, Jesus comparing the Pharisees to unmarked graves. They were so constantly concerned to maintain the boundaries of purity, but they absolutely failed to be impure in the eyes of God. In neglecting justice, in neglecting the love of God, they became the impure objects with which they so zealously avoided to come in contact with externally. And as a result of their impurity, everyone interacting with them was also rendered impure according to God's laws of purity. The Pharisees were so concerned about external religion that they themselves, because of their impurity of heart, were actually sources of spiritual condemnation to all the unsuspecting Israelites. 
It seemed externally that they were clean, that they were holy. Uh, But Jesus clears that up very quickly. They're very unclean and very deceptive. The religiosity drew individuals to them because they appeared to be right with God. They appeared to have it all together. But they ruined everyone who came to them. And so we saw last week, and we will see again this week, that Jesus did not tolerate the false notions of works-based salvation, the self-righteous attempts at pleasing God, and the burdens that were being placed around the necks of the people by the very men who were supposed to be teaching them the truth of God. Evidently, at the same house as Jesus and the Pharisee, there was also another man, a lawyer, Now, the lawyers in the Bible are sometimes referred to as the scribes or the experts of the law. It's all the same category. You see, Jesus' first rebuke that we looked at last week, and those three woes were directly focused on the Pharisees. These Pharisees were the party of men who enforced the legal code. Now, the lawyers were a little bit different, although they're really cut from the same mold. The lawyers were the ones who organized the laws into specific systems. So they were the ones who created new laws to protect God's laws, and therefore they created a whole new legal code altogether. So the woes directed at the Pharisees were specifically dealing with religious practices. And what we'll see today in his woes directed at the lawyers is addressing the ways in which the word of God is being abused. I want to tell you, this is a very solemn theme. These are divine judgments upon those who pervert the word of God. It is Jesus' groaning over the destiny of damnation for those who twist and refuse to submit to the true authority of God's word. Instead, creating an authority and a law of their very own making. No doubt, Jesus is very aggressive here. But we have to remember, along with this, that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Yet far more importantly than that, God will not be mocked and the purity of God's truth and the purity of God's people is of his greatest concern. So Jesus is continuing in his woes. This time he turns to the lawyers. But before he does, we hear directly from the lawyer in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher... In saying these things, you insult us also. Now, as sober as a passage that this is, I cannot help but laugh every time I read that. He's sort of whining here, isn't he? Teacher, you hurt my feelings. But consider what's really at the heart of what the lawyer is saying. Hey, you're saying all of these things about the Pharisees, but they, they hurt my feelings too. Why? Why would they offend the lawyer? Because he's in the same exact camp as the Pharisees. He's admitting the same guilt of what he's accusing them of. What an indictment of himself. 
It's a very clear indication that he knows all of the stinging blows that Jesus just delivered were absolutely true about the Pharisees, but not of the Pharisees only, but himself as well. And this is one of those times when it's all said and done, when one of his buddies probably leans over and says, you just had to say something, didn't you? Thanks a lot. (laughs) It's like saying, teacher, the the beatdown you just gave the Pharisees was pretty severe, but could you please redirect your walloping and smack me down as well? And so, like the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't do it just once, but three times. He delivers three woes to the lawyers as well. Look at the first one in verse 46. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The lawyers claim to be protecting the law of God. And so to do that, they created new laws that were to act as a sort of barrier, if you will, between the people of God and the law of God. In other words, the mindset that was that if one didn't walk anywhere near that which was against law, which was against God's law, there was no possibility of breaking it. So instead of saying, Here's God's law. Here's what God requires of you. The lawyers taught, here's God's law. And if you want to keep his law, you must also adhere to all of these other laws to ensure that you're well within the boundaries of what God is requiring of us. In fact, the boundaries that the lawyers created came to some additional 6,000 laws. And it smothered the people. For example... Many of the extra-biblical laws set down by the lawyers were pertaining to the fourth commandment and the way in which work and rest were to be interpreted and defined. What does it really mean to work? So the lawyers sought to define that through 39 different classifications of labor, each of which had endless subdivisions. One of the categories forbade the carrying of burdens on the Sabbath. And then there were numerous subdivisions of that category explaining exactly what that meant for each person in every circumstance. This section declared that anything equal to or heavier than a dried fig was a burden. So it was permissible to carry something that weighed less than a dried fig on the Sabbath. But if one inadvertently set it down and then picked it back up, it would be considered a double load, therefore breaking the Sabbath. So you see, it's ridiculous. It's foolish. And if you read through the Jewish Mishnah, what's their legal code? It's like reading the U.S. tax code. Or reading the bylaws in our homeowners association. It's a list of burdensome laws that have no end. Subpoint after subpoint after subpoint. And you're expected to understand and adhere to them in their entirety. But the lawyers, on the other hand, the lawyers were very crafty. They were very crafty. They were, they were happy to create heavy burdens for the people to carry. But within the laws that they created, they had other laws. And those laws exempted them from the very same practices. How convenient. 
So the creators of these laws did not really care about the heavy burdens that they had created. If they truly cared, and if they truly thought what they were doing was beneficial, they should have given the people the encouragement and the support in shouldering the load themselves. J.C. Ryle comments on this. They have one set of measures and weights for their hearers and another set for their very own souls. In fact... The lawyers taught that while it was a serious matter to break God's law, it was an even greater offense to break their written interpretations of God's law through all the very regulations they imposed because in their words, they were simply making plain for the people what God's law had apparently made so confusing as if adding 6,000 specific regulations with numerous subpoints to the very law that God had actually given wasn't going to be confusing. Obviously, life had become very near impossible for the average Israelite in Jesus' day if they were seeking to live up to what they assumed by the teaching that they were receiving was to be pleasing to God. They trusted in the wicked scribes. Again, J.C. Ryle comments, Let us beware of telling others to aim at a standard which we do not aim at ourselves. Such conduct, to say the least, is gross inconsistency. Perfection, no doubt, is unattainable in this world. If nobody is to lay down rules or teach or preach until he is faultless himself, the whole fabric of society would be thrown into confusion. But we have a right to expect some agreement between a man's words and a man's work, between his teaching and his doing, between his preaching and his practice. One thing at all events is very certain. No lessons produce such effects on men as those which the teacher illustrates by his own daily life. Happy is he who can say with Paul, those things which you have heard and seen and me do. Brothers and sisters, we must be very vigilant in our day to beware of anything that adds to the word of God anything that adds to that which God himself has not explicitly laid down for us. For our Reformed forefathers, the issue was defined as Christian liberty and was one of the primary issues that they addressed. It was so important to them that they classified it as an issue that is necessary for the Christian to understand if we are truly to understand what takes place in our justification And if we're to understand what sanctification is and how it's all worked out. Now, they, of course, were dealing primarily in the uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century with the litany of abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and their unbiblical traditions. Nevertheless, this issue of Christian liberty extends far beyond the teachings of Rome. One of the most serious ways in which the liberty that is ours in Jesus Christ is infringed upon, is in the same way that we see Jesus addressing. It is through the authoritarian abuses of many churches and their leadership. Now, the rules may be different than those imposed by the lawyers of Jesus' day, but the sin is very much the same. 
out of a great fear that they will not be seen as the authority and be recognized as the go-to experts in every matter of life, many churches and their leaders are abusive and authoritarian. The expectation is that they will be sought on every single matter of life. And if they're not sought, those individuals are considered rebellious, troublemakers. So what you see is a people who are controlled by authoritarian rule, who eventually lack the wisdom and the ability to make decisions on their own, and thus they turn to those who lead them for everything in life whether or not they take a new job or move into a new house or buy a new car or perhaps it's defined for them what they can and cannot wear. And it goes even beyond the scriptural mandates of things like modesty or or telling Christians what they can and cannot celebrate in their homes with regard to special occasions, what they can or cannot eat or drink as long as they're and and going beyond whether or not they're given over to drunkenness or gluttony, and on and on and on. We have to say it's very important that we are very, very careful to never violate the liberty of God's people according to the Word of God. Because it is a matter of whether or not all of us are able to truly experience the freedom that is ours and has been purchased for us in the atoning death of Jesus on our behalf. So let me give you an example. If Russ and I, as the elders of Ephesus Church, were to insist on submission to areas that are not clearly mandated or written down for us in the Scriptures, in other words, in matters we can call matters of conscience or liberty, we would, in effect, be imposing legalistic mandates that usurp the authority which isn't ours. In other words, saying our authority is higher than that of God's. That authority belongs to the Holy Spirit and to the Scriptures alone in the life of the believer. The consequence of this is that those who might put up with it and not just simply leave would fall into uncritical acceptance of whatever is said, even if it violates conscience, and gradually lose the ability to hear from God and his word and simply ask, well, what do our elders say? Instead of, what has God said? You see, it's subtle because it seems good and right and it can be good and right that we would seek the counsel of others, that we'd submit to the God-given authority within the church. But please recognize this, and here's the key to it all. The authority of the church goes no further up than the Word of God alone. And I'm not talking about chapter and verse biblicism where I pull out a verse to prove my point But we have to consider the full counsel of God and all that God has said in his word. Brothers and sisters, we have to be convinced not by men and authoritarian mandates of men, but by the full counsel of God's word. Furthermore, it's very easy to say, I'm just telling you what I suggest that you do in specific instances. But if my so-called suggestion 
becomes something that is held over your head and you're considered a rebellious person because you do otherwise, the end result is exactly the same. A burdensome yoke is placed around your neck and you lose the inability to breathe and you lose the experience of freedom that is ours in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said this is what he was doing. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus was issuing an invitation to a people who were loaded down with traditions and additions that came by way of the scribes and Pharisees. Now note, those who come to Jesus do take on a burden. But the burden is light because it is the proper burden for the soul. It is a burden of obedience to God and his law, not to man and man's invented laws and traditions. No soul was ever meant to bear the burdens of lawyers and those like them. We were meant to bear the burden of what God and God alone has said. He continues on in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, you might be wondering, why does Jesus rebuke the lawyers for building tombs for past prophets? Why was their building of the tombs a testimony of their approval of the killing of the prophets by their forefathers? Jesus very clearly here is dealing with the prophets of Old Testament history, but he covers the whole span of Old Testament history. The blood of Abel, we see that in Genesis chapter 4, the first murder in the Bible, all the way to the end of Hebrew scriptures. Now the Hebrews ordered the books of the Old Testament differently than we do in our Bibles. Their last book of their Old Testament wasn't Malachi. It was Second Chronicles. Well, who's the last one to be killed in Second Chronicles? It was Zechariah. So he's saying from the beginning of time to the end of what we have written in our scriptures, all of the prophets of Old Testament history from beginning to end, you are guilty of their blood. So... The scribes built tombs in supposed honor of the dead prophets. But here's the problem. They were living lives that were directly opposed to the very prophetic word that came from those dead prophets. In other words, the lawyers were living in ways that the prophets condemned and they openly neglected the teaching of the prophets, but they pretended to have great respect for them. So Jesus is pointing out that their building of tombs was actually a celebration of those murders. 
Now, the true sense of what Jesus is saying is a bit difficult here, but we could say it like this. Your forefathers killed the prophets and you make sure they're dead. Or you build great tombs to ensure that the prophets will never return to trouble the living. In other words, they were completing the work of those who killed them. They were partners in their death. Now, there's some great irony here. Jesus is pointing out what may not be immediately evident, but it becomes glaringly obvious. These lawyers were supposed to be experts of the law, but they were actually twisters and killers of the true law, the law of the word of God. What was the primary function of a prophet? A proclamation of the truth of God. Thus says the Lord. The primary function of a prophet was to proclaim that which God had said. But these so-called experts of the law were actually murderers of the word. They made it literally impossible for the people to truly hear the word of the Lord because it was so hidden in all of their numerous editions. And look at this. The layers here are really interesting. It's fascinating. The experts of the law were celebrating the death of the prophets who were the God-ordained proclaimers of the true law. And then Jesus himself makes a prophetic statement in verse 49 regarding lawyers who rejoice in the death of the prophets. So catch this. Jesus is really dealing with the men in his midst and their refusal of his words and his messiahship. Look again at verse 49. Because of this, God said, literally, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Who's he talking about? The prophets, the apostles, and Jesus. And by killing them, it would prove what kind of men the scribes really were. You see in verse 50 and 51, so that blood of all of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now, Would Jesus' own generation be judged for the accumulated blood of all of the prophets slain before these men were even born? That seems to be what Jesus says, isn't it? But why? The people of Jesus' day were undoubtedly the most privileged of all generations throughout the history of Israel. They possessed the accumulated wisdom and words of all of the prophets, The Old Testament scriptures were completed, and they had them. God had sent them the greatest prophet ever, John the Baptist. He was in their midst. They killed him. And then he sent them the Messiah himself, the Word of God, preaching the Word of God. And along with him came the apostles who lived out the exhortation to preach the Word. The apostolic preaching of the cross was a more glorious statement of the gospel than any previous generation had ever known. 
And when Jesus' generation rejected it, they demonstrated that they were, for, they were partners with their forefathers in the killing of the prophets. Indeed, they were far more guilty than their ancestors because they rejected the word preached by greater prophets and greater apostles. And they will answer for it on the day of judgment. But between the time of Jesus' proclamation and the day of the final judgment, so all could see this very thing at work, judgment did fall on Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and again in 135 when the temple was completely destroyed and the people were deported. Brothers and sisters, we, you and I, will all answer at the judgment. If their responsibility was great... How much more ours? We who have the entire canon of the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments. We've had the preaching of that same Word for the last 2,000 years, and we have mountains upon mountains of resources that are readily available and produced by the people of God to help us understand and apply His Word in our lives. We cannot avoid this reality that is ever before us. We are responsible for what we know and how we work it out in our lives. Does that not make you all the more thankful for the work of Christ on our behalf? Friends, some of you here this morning know the word of God really well. You've heard it for years and years. You can talk about what's in the scriptures. You can talk theology that's contained within. But you refuse in your heart to repent of your sin and to truly believe the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that your knowledge of the scriptures only serves to further condemn you? Do you not know that your judgment will be far greater than the one who never hears the gospel. Surely you will both be found guilty on the day of judgment because you are without excuse, but you especially, you who can tell me what the gospel is and what Christ has accomplished for the people of God, yet ignore it completely. Your judgment will be great. Christ alone can set us free from the bondage of our sin and from this death giving us a right standing before the Father on the day of judgment. It is the righteousness of Christ alone that makes us clean in the eyes of God to where he will declare that we are not guilty and not held liable for our sins. So friend, if you are depending on your own works for your salvation, if you are depending on your own perceived goodness, you are condemned already. Jesus commands you to repent of your sin and to believe on him because he is your only hope. Jesus' third and final woe to the lawyers is found in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. The lawyers had taken the word of God away from the people by all the various additions and barriers. They themselves were outside of the kingdom even though they held the key of truth. And as a result, they were keeping others around them outside the kingdom as well. It's as if the door was locked and they stood there with the key and 
flaunted it in front of everyone's faces and said, you will never go in because I'm never going in. What an indictment. Not only on the lawyers, but on the countless millions of sermons that have been preached throughout the centuries. Woe to any man who stands to proclaim that which God has said and yet delivers not the true word of God, but the words of his own fallible wisdom, the word of his own personal preferences, the word of his own personal liking. Woe to the charlatans of the world who use the word of God to make themselves rich, to gain themselves lofty positions of power and prestige. Woe to the false teachers of the world who know the true knowledge of the word of God, but yet keep it from being known by the people because they desire instead to oppress and condemn. Woe to the wolves who twist the pure word of God to tickle the ears of men and women that they themselves might be well liked and applauded, never having to face direct opposition and endure the scorn of man like our dear Savior did. God's word to his preachers has never been, do your best to make people comfortable, to make them feel safe with their sin, to make them happy and warm with a poem and a few attention-keeping stories. God's word to his men is do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Woe to any man who takes the sacred desk without a word from God and God alone, but rather a word that keeps the true knowledge of the kingdom from those who so desperately need to hear it. And that goes not only for preachers, it goes for every single Christian. We must be a people who are primarily about one single book in this life. Here's what I hope. I hope that by God's grace, I will be a man who is ever increasingly understanding the word of God and delivering for you a full feast of what God has provided, that you might be filled more and more and more with him, more of what he has for us. By God's grace, I hope that together we can be here for years and years and through my time here, that the the legacy of our ministry, the legacy of Ephesus Church can be that we are a people that know when we hear the true word of God preached and we can identify when it's not. I pray that God makes us a people who are discerning because we know the word of God. We have the true knowledge of the word of God. I pray that we are a people who read many, many books, but who are a people primarily about one book. If that happens, brothers and sisters, there is no stopping Ephesus Church, and the light here will never be snuffed out. It will only grow brighter and brighter and brighter to the nations. Finally, the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes are truly revealed at the end of this passage, verses 53 and 54. He went away from there. The scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. The words of Jesus were undoubtedly hard words. They provoked the true desires of those who opposed him. We know very well the story. They didn't simply want to silence him. They wanted to kill him. 
And so from here on out, we will see many attempts on their part to trap him that they might put him to death. Now you see the woes of Jesus upon the Pharisees and the lawyers are undoubtedly hard to swallow, but they are very gracious words nonetheless. They are warnings to get the attention of the people. There are warnings to get our attention. Will we be a people who are faithful to the whole counsel of God? Will we be greedy and wicked, having no concern for justice and righteousness? Will we be primarily concerned with outward appearances of religiosity? Will we bask in the praise of men and seek to be applauded by others? Shall we put a yoke of slavery and bondage around the necks of others? And shall we ignore the very truth we know is plain in God's word simply because we do not want to submit to it? Will we be a people who focuses on the world and all the trappings of this life? Brothers and sisters, let us instead be a people of generous, gracious hearts with a great concern for justice and righteousness and holiness. Let our concern be for the inside of the cup, that it is clean by the work of the Holy Spirit and in our pursuit of holiness, instead of spending our time and our efforts on polishing the outside of the cup. Let's not worry ourselves with the praise and the applause of men, but realize that our lives are lived for an audience of one, the only one whose ultimate opinion matters. Let us remember what God says and not go beyond his word, placing a yoke of bondage upon the necks of others, of our church, of our family, even ourselves. The laws of men are deadly. The law of God is for our good. So let us be a people who know and love and submit to the plain teaching of God's word, whose focus is not on the world but on all that God has given us for our benefit, for righteousness' sake. Let us be discerning, loving, gracious, truth-telling, gospel-loving, God-glorifying, word-of-God-knowing people who don't hear these terrible words of woe on the day of judgment, but instead who hear the great words, well done my good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, your word tells us in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend. In the text we've considered the last two weeks, truly, You have shown yourself to be faithful. Jesus is our friend as your people. And where he has wounded us, we rejoice in knowing that he doesn't leave us there. Father, many of us feel pierced by the truth of your word, the conviction it brings And yet it reminds us yet again of the provision that has been made in Jesus Christ in fulfillment 
of the great covenant made among the members of the Trinity to bring about redemption on our behalf. Father, we rejoice in knowing that we can receive a firm, needed rebuke from your word and yet always be reminded that it is not by our strength, it is not by our own personal will that we would be made right before you, but it has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And by his blood, We have been cleansed, the curtain has been torn in two, and we have access to you, our Father who's in heaven. And so we pray, God, that you help us to truly consider the woes of Jesus upon the Pharisees and the scribes, to consider our own lives, to consider where we fall short to repent, to pursue holiness and godliness in our own lives, ever dependent upon your grace and the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, we rejoice not in what we can do, but what in Christ has already done. He is our Savior. He is true wisdom. He is the true word. He is our God. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the correction we receive and the grace of the gospel that is applied to our hearts as a healing, soothing, warming balm that makes us whole in Jesus Christ. Do a great work by the power of your word for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.